For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, my fellow believers, and welcome into episode number 34 of Combat Bets on the Believe Network. I'm your host, Jason Barron, and thank you so much for joining me on another great episode. Of course, we've got a big fight weekend coming up with Canelo Alvarez in action. Also, the lightweight title in the UFC is on the line between Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje. I'll be getting to those fights a bit later in the show, but I just want to start out with some Champions League heartbreak. Of course, I'm talking about Blue Moon, the team I root for in Manchester City, going down in heartbreaking fashion. If you watch the game, you know what I'm talking about. Leading 1-0 throughout the game after Mares scored, I believe, around the 70th minute. And it got into the 90th minute. It looked like they were going to play Liverpool in the final Of course, Rodrigo had other plans. The young Brazilian on Real Madrid really was able to take this game out from the depths of defeat and give his team a chance with two late-on goals. And then, oh, an extra time, unfortunately, Ruben Diaz gave away a penalty. And, of course, Karim Benzema drew the penalty and also put it away, thus ending the hopes and dreams of Manchester City fans around the world. And for us, we can still win the Premier League, but unfortunately, City gave away to the Santiago Bernabeu magic that we've seen throughout the competition. Real Madrid came back against Chelsea, also PSG, and now Manchester City. So look forward to a great Champions League final between Liverpool and Real Madrid. I question Pep Guardiola's decision to take off Kevin De Bruyne around the 70th minute uh, during regulation time. And then when it reached extra time, they didn't have that extra bit of creativity and class that you need in those high-pressure moments to sometimes break through. And they didn't have De Bruyne out there to perhaps produce another magical moment for Manchester City. And you know, you can say City was the better side through the two legs. In the first game, obviously, a seven-goal thriller. I thought City really should have put maybe six goals past Real Madrid. And let's not forget that brilliant strike from Bernardo Silva in the first leg really saved that game for Manchester City, a game that, as I said, they should have won by a few goals. It ended up being 4-3. And only a one-goal margin, you know, might not be enough of a cushion going back to uh, Madrid and having to play them. So we, we had to find that out the hard way, unfortunately. On the other side, what a run for Villarreal, upsetting Bayern Munich in the previous round with a stout defense, a late winner in the second leg. Just amazing performance by, by Villarreal. Even in the second game against Liverpool, they really showed fight by coming back from a two-goal aggregate scoreline to make it 2-0 in their favor at halftime. And then terrible goalkeeping errors by the Villarreal keeper really cost them in that game. 
but give Liverpool credit for coming back and really changing the game. I thought the substitution of Luis Diaz uh, for Diego Jota in that game really changed the complexion of how uh, Liverpool was able to attack them in the second half, and they showed the class that they have. I love watching Mohamed Salah play, so I'll really be looking forward to him watching uh, You know how he plays in the final. Obviously, I wanted Manchester City to be the opponent, but, you know, I'll have to settle for Benzema, Junior Vinicius, Kamavinga, who's also been a game changer for Real Madrid. I thought when he was subbed on against Man City, he gave them a bit more pace up front, really able to sprint down the wing and, you know, create more opportunities for Madrid. And they were able to take advantage of those. So credit to them. And now a word from our sponsor, BetOnline.ag. Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the NBA and NHL playoffs, Major League Baseball, fights, and even next season's NFL futures. And don't forget this weekend, as the run on the roses is on at the Kentucky Derby, BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code BLEAVE to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. I'll go ahead and start with a fight that happened on April 30th, 2022 from the MGM Grand Garden Arena in Nevada. And that was, of course, Oscar Valdez taking on Shakur Stevenson. What a fighter Shakur Stevenson is. This was a unification bout between Stevenson and Valdez. Stevenson came in with a WBO Super Featherweight title, and he won the WBC title that Oscar Valdez came in with. It was really a virtuoso performance from Shakur Stevenson, and expecting nothing less from the 24-year-old maestro, who really is like an artist inside the ring, using his fists and his head movement as his canvas to paint a beautiful picture of what boxing should look like, what the sweet science is all about, hitting and not getting hit. Stevenson continues to show his very stout defense. If you want to try to get on the inside of him, you're just going to continue to catch that pawing job that he throws out there to really read his opponent, and then he followed up with a right hand. He really has a plethora of punches he can go through. Obviously, defensively, he's one of the top boxers in the world, but where he has to improve on in his career is having more of that knockout power and being more offensive-minded. You know, the only criticism that you could have of him is that he wasn't able to get Oscar Valdez out of there. But let's not forget that Valdez was a world champion coming into this fight. He brutalized Miguel Burchelt to win that world title and then defended it somewhat controversially against Robinson Conceição. Some thought he lost that fight. I had it pretty close. Stevenson, on the other hand, is coming off a nice knockout win in his world title fight against Jamel Herring, completely overwhelming him and showing why he's just several several uh, levels above most of the fighters that he's going to get in the ring with. 
You know, we'll see if Stevenson can unify at 130 pounds and then move up to 135, where there's a lot of super fights with the likes of Devin Haney, George Gambosos Jr., also uh, obviously Vasily Lomachenko. So I expect Stevenson to be in some of those fights later in his career, but we'll see where he goes from here. For Valdez, he's still a great fighter. Maybe the second best 130-pounder out there. We're not really sure because he hasn't fought the other belt holders yet. But that just shows how good Stevenson that he made perhaps the second best guy at 130 pounds look pedestrian at best with really nothing offensively to really challenge him with. Stevenson has an advanced understanding of how to box, knowing when to take a half step back to get out of range knowing when to move his head back just so you hit air instead of, you know, barely touching him. So he understands distance very well, and offensively he's very measured in his approach and always looking to see where he can gain an advantage and never really being out of position. So it's going to take a very tactical fighter and a fighter with some power in his hands to really challenge him. Valdez landed 110 out of 508 punches thrown. Stevenson landed 189 out of 580 thrown, so almost outlanded him by about 80 punches, looked great out there, and the sky's the limit for this kid. He is the next superstar of boxing, even though he didn't get the knockout, he showed all the qualities that make him such a special fighter, and a fighter that in the next decade will really dominate the sport, and could retire undefeated. But obviously we want to see the big fights against the likes of Alomachenko. And then eventually maybe he'll move up to 140 and continue his career there. Valdez is 31 years old, so he's still got some good years ahead of him. Maybe he could face the likes of Hector Garcia, who got a big win over Chris Colbert in his last fight. Or he could perhaps face the winner of the upcoming fight with Jamel Herring. You know, there's some good fights out out there, maybe even a Leo Santa Cruz as well. So some interesting fights still out there for Valdez, even coming off a loss. And for Stevenson, we'll see if he goes on to unify the division. He's only getting better. And in this fight, his body looked stronger. His back looked like it had more muscles in it. He's growing into his man strength. He's realizing more and more what his body can do and how special he is. Valdez can take some pride in the fact that he didn't get finished in there and that he landed more punches on Stevenson than any other opponent that Stevenson had been in there with previously. Now let's move on to another fight, the fight of the night, perhaps the fight of the year. I'm of course talking about Katie Taylor against Amanda Serrano from Madison Square Garden on April 30th. In the co-main event, Liam Smith looked really good against Jesse Vargas, getting a 10th round TKO victory over him. He really battered Vargas throughout the fight. Didn't let him really get any airspace to get much offense off. And Liam Smith did a great job of closing the distance and really imposing his will on Jesse Vargas. It was a big win for him towards the end of his career. And we'll see who he's up with next. But getting a win over a veteran in Jesse Vargas and looking great in there. Brutal in his attacks to the body and really putting the pressure on Vargas and ultimately he was forced to submit under the will and the forward pressure that Liam Smith was putting on him throughout the fight in a great performance. Let's move on to the main event and what a fight it was 
between Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano. Taylor was coming into this fight and still is the undisputed champion in the lightweight division, holding all four belts. This was a fight at 135 pounds between two of the best fighters in the sport in Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano. This fight was really a tale of two halves of the fight. The first half of the fight, Amanda Serrano was really able to impose her will and her reach advantage on Katie Taylor, nearly finishing the fight in the fourth round. And one of the problems I have with women's boxing is that the rounds are only two minutes, and also this was only a 10-round fight and not a 12-round fight. I don't understand that. Not only are we only getting two-minute rounds, but it was also two rounds shorter than a world champion fight should be. So I think they're just hurting the sport by doing this because in three-minute rounds, we get to see a little bit more action. And if the other uh, opponent almost has him out of there, he'll have more of an opportunity to get him out of there instead of allowing the fighter to go back to the corner each round, barely making it out of the round. I think it can actually create more of a problem by not allowing the fighters to have more time to work during the rounds. But getting back to the actual fight, while it lasted, those 20 minutes were unbelievable action. These two women gave it their all in what I'm saying is the fight of the year thus far. It was nonstop action. Amanda Serrano was able to use her reach in the first half of the fight. Really hurt Katie Taylor with some one-twos, some beautiful combinations, some body shots. Taylor did not like that at all. But she showed the heart of a champion after nearly being finished. She bit down on her gum shield. She went forward, went inside the pocket, closed the distance, and landed those trademark hooks uppercuts, flurry of punches that Kitty Taylor is so well known for and why she's beloved amongst fight fans because of her exciting fighting style. And we knew Amanda Serrano coming into this fight had great knockout power. We've seen her finish countless opponents before. Katie Taylor on the other side was this great come forward fighter with some defensive inefficiencies, but who always had the power, the will, and the fortitude to fight through adversity, and that's exactly what we saw in this fight against Amanda Serrano. I think it made both these women bigger stars. There was no true loser of this fight. It was a split decision. I would have been happy if the judges ruled it a draw, but it was a very close fight. I just thought that Taylor might have edged it out because of her terrific second-half performance. Serrano, one of the best fighters in women's boxing, was actually moving up in weight to take this fight against Katie Taylor and make this super fight happen. And Serrano's record is 42-2-1 with 2 losses by decision, 30 wins by knockout, 12 by decision, with 1 draw. So clearly a very accomplished fighter, a multiple weight world champion. Serrano is 33, she's from Puerto Rico, and she's 5'5" with a 65 and a half inch reach. Taylor is 35 years old. She's also five foot five with a 66 inch reach and she's more of a natural lightweight at 135 pounds. She is Irish as well, the pride of Ireland and obviously a lot of Irish supporters, also a lot of Puerto Ricans in New York. So it was a great place to have the fight and it really lived up to the hype as being the biggest fight in women's boxing history. It really was a huge event, and I'm glad that, you know, they were able to shatter down that glass ceiling of having the first boxing event headlined by women's fighters 
in the famed Madison Square Garden, and it has to go down as one of the greatest fights in Madison Square Garden's history with the amount of titles that were on the line, with how big the event was, and how it lived up to it in the ring. One quibble I have was I wish it was, you know, three-minute rounds and that they went for 12 rounds. But having said that, while it lasted, it was, you know, great action, and both these women really fought their hearts out as and Katie Taylor showed the heart of a champion by coming back you know in the second half of the fight and really imposing her will and more of her game plan on Amanda Serrano. What made it such a great fight is that both fighters had their moments of greatness both of them faced adversity throughout the fight and it was such a close pick and fight and that's what we're looking for as fight fans. We're looking for close fights that will be competitive throughout and with exciting action, and that's exactly what these two women delivered. Now, another fight that was not really all that competitive and I'm getting to now is the fight on April 23rd between Tyson Fury and Dillian White. In this fight, Tyson Fury retained his WBC heavyweight title against Dillian White with a six-round knockout with a right uppercut from the gods of boxing that came down and blessed Tyson Fury because it was a beautiful uppercut, probably will be the knockout of the year in boxing. This was a huge event held at Wembley Stadium in London, England. Almost 94,000 fans there. An amazing spectacle to witness as a boxing fan and as a fan of Tyson Fury, his homecoming of sorts as a British fighter and perhaps his send-off fight as he could be retiring from boxing, he was able to come home and dominate and conquer and continue his heavyweight reign as the greatest heavyweight in the world right now. His supreme boxing skill along with his reach and his improved power as we've seen recently through these past few fights has really made Fury a real menace to attempt to defeat because he's got the power, he's got the reach. He's got the technical ability of a great boxer along with the mind and the hand speed to actually execute what he's looking to do out there, which is dominate his opponent. And Dillian White never really had a chance in this fight. Throughout the whole fight, it was interesting that Fury wasn't really throwing a lot of uppercuts. This seemed to be a great strategy employed by Tyson Fury because he was thinking... I'm going to set up this shot later in the fight when I see the opportunity, but I'm, you know, going to hide this weapon that I have right now, so he's not really looking for it throughout the fight, and that's indeed how it played out. As uh, the sixth round was ending, he hit him with a little one-two, Dillian White wasn't out of range, and he threw a beautiful uppercut with hand speed that I rarely see in boxing. It was so quick, so fast, so lethal. You saw Dillian White's head bob up and down and then Fury gave him a little push and I think that was more you know watching out for his well-being because he knew if he landed a follow-up punch after the uppercut it really could have been even more lights out for Dillian White give credit to White for getting back up but obviously the fight should be called there because we don't want to see him get even more hurt and you know against a great fighter like Fury who's got power and speed in both hands. We know that White's big weapon is his left hook, but he wasn't ever able to get close enough to Fury to really challenge him and land any of those big power shots that he needed to change the complexion of this fight. 
We've seen Dillian White get knocked out by an uppercut before, most recently against Alexander Povetkin, who put him out there with a fifth round TKO win. In their rematch, Dillian White was able to get the better of Povetkin and get a fourth round knockout to set up this big fight against Tyson Fury. And while it wasn't all that competitive, it was just great to see one of the greatest athletes in the world today compete in the ring for what could be the last time. Of course, after the fight, we saw Francis Ngannou come into the ring and they teased a potential fight between Fury and Ngannou. We'll see if that happens. We'll see if Fury gets the winner of Usyk against Joshua or if he rides off into the sunset as one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. Fury landed 76 out of 243 punches. Dillian White only landed 29 out of 171 total punches. So not only is Fury's offense getting better and better, showing more knockout power, his defense is also very stout as he's very hard to hit, knows how to keep the distance with that pawing jab and following it up with big right hands or throwing a beautiful right uppercut to finish the fight. This guy has a lot of punches he can go to. He can even fight southpaw or orthodox as we saw him kind of try to confuse White in the early rounds coming out with one look in one round and then coming out southpaw in the next round. It was a very interesting tactic and just shows the versatility that Tyson Fury can fight with. Hopefully for us boxing fans this isn't the last time we see him in the ring. Fury gave us one of the great modern trilogies in boxing against Deontay Wilder. He showed his fortitude getting cut badly against Otto Wallin, battling through that to get a decision win. And then coming out against Dillian White, another top heavyweight, and completely wiping the floor with him. Now on the other side for Dillian White, an interesting matchup that I could see him possibly having is against Joe Joyce. He's uh, not as much talked about in the heavyweight division, but he's definitely up and coming, and I think a fight between White and Joe Joyce would do a lot for both their careers, and the winner you know, could set himself up for another world title opportunity. Also, both Joyce and Dillian White are both British, so it's a big fight between two Brit heavyweights, and the Brits really seem to be dominating the heavyweight division with Anthony Joshua, Dillian White, Joe Joyce, Daniel Dubois, and of course Tyson Fury topping all of them. A great fighter, so we'll see what happens. Speaking of heavyweights, I saw that Canelo Alvarez said he would be willing to fight Alexander Usyk if Usyk only weighs in one pound above the cruiserweight limit, still making it a heavyweight fight, but I don't know if we'll ever see that. Alvarez is really willing to take on anyone. But first, we'll see how the rematch goes between Usyk and Joshua. I expect Usyk to come out on top once again, but we'll see if Joshua can change his tactics and get on the offensive more and find that always moving target because of Usyk's supreme footwork. Now moving on to another fight happened on April 16th from the Manchester Arena in Manchester, England, and it was between Conor Ben and Chris Van Heerden, and Conor Ben won by second round TKO, and he retained his WBA Continental Welterweight title. Conor Ben is an up-and-coming welterweight fighter, not quite at that world level yet, but he's he's a very skilled fighter. He's really a, a destroyer in there, only 25 years old, 5'8", always looking for the knockout, and his nickname is actually the Destroyer, a very fitting nickname. When you see how he fights, he disposed of Chris Algieri in four rounds, now disposed of another, you know, top opponent, Chris Van Heerden, in only two rounds. 
he appears to be getting better and better in each fight and we'll see if he can get a big fight maybe against a Cal Brook two British uh, welterweights going at it I know that's a pretty big fight maybe against a Keith Thurman or a Mario Barrios there's a lot of big fights to make in the welterweight division and I think in the next couple of fights we'll see Conor Ben raise the level of his competition and you know how he goes about his wins he has 14 wins by knockout and 7 by decision with 0 losses so right now 21-0 if Conor Ben can continue to put on these types of virtuoso performances it won't be long before he's fighting for a world title against the likes of an Errol Spence Jr. or maybe a Terence Crawford. Right now, those are the two top dogs at welterweight, and hopefully we get that fight soon. But getting back to Conor Ben, I thought he showed great power in there, and when he has his opponent hurt, he's a very good finisher. He lands that big right hand, then he follows it up with a fury, flurry of punches, and uh, Chris Van Heerden really had nothing to come back at him with, so Ben was able to overwhelm him and get a guy that had been in there against some pretty great welterweights. He got knocked out by Errol Spence in the 8th round, but it only took Conor Ben 2 rounds to dispose of him, so it just shows me that as he moves up in competition, he's also raising the level of his boxing game, and I think Conor Ben's a future star in the welterweight division, and hopefully he gets big fights in the future. And for Chris Van Heerden, he's pretty old now. He's 34 years old. This could be one of the last fights we see him in. Moving on to the other fight card on that day, for, on April 16th from Arlington, Texas, on Showtime pay-per-view. In the co-main event, we had Isak Cruz taking on Eurokis Gamboa. 10 rounds in the lightweight division. Isak Cruz is coming off a great performance against Gervonta Davis in a decision loss. Cruz, a small Mexican fighter, is definitely an up-and-coming lightweight. He fights with powerful hooks, throwing from weird angles. He's of short stature, so a small target. And he was able to take advantage of the older Cuban fighter in Eurokis Gamboa, continually putting him on the back foot, knocking him down, I believe, pretty much every round throughout the fight until he was able to get the finish. This was a really great performance against Isak Cruz, Considering the fight between Devin Haney and Eurokis Camboa wasn't as dominant on Haney's side, and then you look at what Cruz did, how he completely destroyed the boxer in Gamboa, just showed me that he's at a very high level and not quite, you know, at the Gervonta Davis or Vasily Lomachenko level of, of those lightweights, but just below it, and he's going to beat most guys that he goes up against. He was able to get Gamboa out of there with a 5th round TKO because of his flurry of hooks that came around the guard of Gamboa. And Gamboa, usually with a stout defense, really had no answers for the forward pressure and the mauling attack that Cruz employed against Gamboa. Cruz is only 23 years old and he stands at 5'4", so a pretty short, lightweight. And his record now is 23-2-1. 16 wins by knockout and 7 by decision, 2 losses and 1 draw. Of course, his most recent loss came against the great Gervonta Davis, who also has a fight coming up. Isak Cruz is now the 8th ranked lightweight in the world. Number 7, Joseph Diaz Jr. 6, Ryan Garcia. 5, Tiafima Lopez Jr. 4, Devin Haney. 3, Gervonta Davis. 2, Vasilo Lomachenko. And number 1, George Gambosos Jr. This is according to ESPN.com their fighter rankings. They go through each weight class and list the top 10. Right now they have Cruz 8, 
I could see him matching up with some guys higher up, you know, in the rankings like uh, Jojo Diaz or uh, Ryan Garcia. I think those are both big fights that could definitely be made. Cruz has a very fan-friendly style because he likes to come forward and throw a lot of hooks from weird angles, and he's always looking for the knockout. So he's never going to be in a boring fight, and we'll see where he goes from here. He's a young fighter, and he's got a lot of big fights ahead of him. For Eurokis Gamboa, he's old, he's 40, so this could be the last time we see him in the ring, especially because of the beating he took against Cruz. In the main event from AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas, we had a welterweight unification bout between Errol Spence Jr. and Yordanis Ugas. Spence was coming in with the WBC and IBF welterweight titles. Ugas, a Cuban fighter, was coming in with the WBA welterweight title. So this was a unification bout that Errol Spence Jr. absolutely dominated with a flurry of uppercuts, hooks, jabs, really able to get on the inside and dictate the pace. I thought that Ugas was going to more box off the back foot and be more defensive like he was against Manny Pacquiao where he was able to use his reach, his timing, and his beautiful double-triple jabs to keep Pacquiao on the outside. He didn't really employ that same tactic against Errol Spence Jr. Instead, he allowed Errol to get on the inside and continue his body work, also landing a lot of brutal uppercuts and a lot of hooks on him. And then you could see his left eye just closing more and more as the fight went on. He couldn't even see out of that eye as you know the fight got into the later rounds, which is why they stopped the fight. Errol Spence Jr. is 5'9 with a 72-inch reach, and he's 32 years old, and now he's the unified champion in the welterweight division. His record is 28-0 with 22 wins by knockout, and he added another one with a 10th round TKO of Yordanis Ugas in his last fight. And what made this fight even more impressive was that Spence was coming off nearly a two-year layoff last fighting in December of 2020 in a unanimous decision win over Danny Garcia in his comeback fight after his near-fatal car crash. Now he returns to the ring nearly two years removed from that big win over Danny Garcia. And what he did against Yordanis Ugas, a fellow world champion coming into that fight, was even more impressive when you consider what Ugas did against Pacquiao and how great he looked in that fight made Pacquiao look slow and like he couldn't really hit him. But then you consider what Spence did to Ugas, it just puts him in rarefied air and makes uh, the fight you know, even more clear now that needs to be made between Terrence Crawford and Errol Spence Jr. I think it's the biggest fight that can be made in all of boxing and hopefully we see it, if not in 2022, hopefully in the following year. Because these two welterweights, they absolutely need to fight each other to determine who the best is in the division. Because I think pretty clearly they're the top two dogs, but I would have favored Crawford in that fight, but we don't really know who's better. Crawford is 5'8", 74-inch reach, and he's 34 years old. His record is also undefeated with 38 wins and 29 coming by knockout. He's coming off a 10th round TKO victory over Sean Porter, a fight in which he retired Sean Porter, and Crawford looked really good in that fight with a stout defensive game plan, and he just was able to overwhelm Sean Porter with his timing and speed, which are the two qualities that make Crawford such an elite fighter 
making it even more difficult to game plan against Crawford because of all the different tactics and all the different tools he can utilize to defeat his opponent. He can do it boxing him. He can do it with punches from weird angles. And if the fight does get made against Errol Spence Jr., which I think it will because both have tweeted an interest and, you know, gone back and forth on social media against each other. So I think we're going to see that fight finally get made. And it's a super fight in the welterweight division. It would be a unification bout because the winner would be the undisputed champion holding all four belts. Both fighters are in their early 30s, right in the prime of their careers, so the fight needs to happen soon, and it can't marinate for another couple years because it won't have the same impact that it would have now on the sport of boxing. In this performance by Errol Spence Jr. against Jordanis Ugas, I thought he showed all the qualities that make him a world champion. His brutal punching power, his ability to string punches together, his, you know, kind of shoulder defense where he leans back so the other fighter can't get off you know too many clean punches on him so it combines a brutal offensive attack with pretty good defensive tactics he looks like he's getting better in this fight he looked much better than even in the fight when he fought Danny Garcia almost two years ago I thought he's improved since then both offensively and defensively Spence landed 216 of 784 punches thrown with 70 body shots landed. Ugas only landed 96 of 541 thrown with only 28 punt body shots landed. So clearly Spence was really stout in his defensive acumen and he really put a beating on your Dennis Ugas who we've never really seen push like that and being like that, especially coming off his big win over Manny Pacquiao. Moving on to the next fight on April 9th from Los Angeles on Showtime. In the main event, we had Erickson Lewis versus Sebastian Fundora, 12 rounds for the WBC interim junior middleweight title. And we all know Sebastian Fundora as a very tall fighter, and he's able to brutalize Erickson Lubin. His face looked absolutely disfigured after the fight was called completely putting a beating on him. Lubin was able to come back, even put Fundora down, but Fundora got back up and continued on with his dominance, his long reach, and he also packs a bit of a punch. Not only is he tall and long, but he can also punch a bit, and that's what he was able to show against Lubin, who's another top fighter in that division, but he was able to really put a beating on him, and I think Fundora is a very talented fighter, and we'll see who can really match up with him and actually give him a challenge because in all his fights we've really been able to see him really dominate because of his you know height and reach advantages. Fendora nicknamed the Towering Inferno because of his tall stature. Fendora is a light middleweight fighting at 154 pounds. He's six foot five and a half with an 80 inch reach and he's only 24 years old so clearly this guy is an up-and-coming fighter. And his opponent, Erickson Lubin, is 26 years old. He only stands at 5'9 with a 74 inch and a half inch reach. So he is going to have some trouble against Sebastian Fendora, and that's indeed what we saw in their fight. This fight ended in a ninth round corner stop stoppage because of the absolute beating that Lubin was taking at the hands of Fendora. He showed a great offensive attack in this fight really showed what makes him such a great fighter because he can string together a lot of punches. He's got great stamina. 
And of course, his physical stature and his reach is going to give him an advantage against most 154-pounders. He's still young. He's still learning the fight game. So as he gets better, we'll see him in there against world-level opposition. And in the rankings, he's actually all the way up to third. The only two fighters above him are the two world champions in that division. Of course, Jermel Charlo at number two and number one, Brian Castaño. A big fight that's coming up next Saturday. It's a fight I'll be attending and it'll be for the undisputed 154 pound belts. All four will be on the line in that fight. So big fight coming up. If Fundora doesn't get the winner of Castaño and Charlo, then another fight they could make is him against Tim Shu. Shu just had a great performance, a unanimous decision win over Terrell Gausha in his first fight in the U.S. He's of Australian descent and his father was also a boxer. So Tim Zhu versus Sebastian Fedora is another big fight to make. Also Tony Harrison, who's coming off a unanimous decision win over Sergio Garcia on April 9th, would be another fight to make in that division. For Fundora, he's on up and up, and I think it won't be too long before he challenges for a world title. Also on April 9th from San Antonio, Texas, on DAZN, in the main event we had Ryan Garcia, against Emmanuel Tego. Ryan Garcia is 23 years old, 5 foot 10 with a 70 inch reach. His record is now 22-0 with 18 wins by knockout and 4 by decision. And against Emmanuel Tego, he won by unanimous decision after 12 rounds from the Alamo Dome in San Antonio, Texas. And this was his first fight back since January of 2021. So more than a year layoff for him. Because of injuries and other reasons, Garcia hadn't fought for quite a while. And in this fight against Tago, I thought he should have been able to get him out of there, but he wasn't. Give credit to Tago for his, you know, confusing defensive instincts and his tactics. Garcia could never really hurt him badly enough to get him out of there. And it wasn't really a very impressive performance for Ryan Garcia, but you kind of expect that considering the long layoff he had been on coming into this fight. I thought Garcia should have employed some more versatility in his offensive attack, gone to the body more, and really tried to put the pressure on Tago to get him out of there. Because when a fighter is content to stay on the outside and not get hit much, it's on the offensive attacker to you know really push the issue forward and make sure he dominates the fight. While Garcia won most of the rounds. I don't think it was a dominant performance or a star-making performance. And hopefully he comes out with more offensive firepower in his next fight. He's still a top guy in the 135-pound division. He could get the winner between Haney and Cambosos Jr. He could also fight a guy like Vasily Lomachenko or Gervonta Davis. There's a lot of big fights for uh, Ryan Garcia to be in. And this is just another stepping stone for him. A guy in Emmanuel Tago, who's a bit older, 33 years old, from Ghana, and he's really been around. Uh, his record is 32-2, and two, so his only second professional loss came against Ryan Garcia. But this is a guy that's knocked out a guy like David Saucedo. So clearly he's got some quality, and Ryan Garcia went in there. He couldn't get him out of there, but give uh, a lot of credit to Tago for employing his defensive game plan and main, making Ryan Garcia not look all that great. Moving on to another fight, and that was between Gennady Golovkin and Ryoto Murata.
from the Saitama Super Arena in Saitama City, Japan. Gennady Golovkin retained his IBF and IBO middleweight titles and also won the WBA middleweight title off the world champion coming into the fight in Ryoto Murata. And Gennady Golovkin was able to defeat Murata in his native Japan. But early on in the fight, I thought Murata was having a lot of success attacking the body of Triple G, really pushing him back, getting him on the back foot, and able to get off some decent offensive attack. At times during the early rounds, Triple G looked all the bit of 40 years old. But as the fight wore on into the second half of the fight, he was really able to impose his will on Murata and was able to get a TKO victory in the ninth round as Murata could no longer sustain the offensive attack that he did early on in the fight and Triple G started to get his timing down and see how he wanted to attack Murata more and he started walking him down as Triple G is prone to do with that plotting come forward style and he loves to throw the double right hook also the double left hook it's a really beautiful punch where he'll throw it straight the first time and then the second time uh, throw it where he puts his uh, you know his thumb down so it's under his fist. It's a really beautiful tactic to watch and if you know how Triple G fights you know uh, the double hook that I'm referring to and how effective it is against most of his opponents. Murado, a world champion coming into this fight, I thought he put on a great performance. It was a pretty entertaining fight throughout you know, good action throughout, and Murata is 36 years old, so 40 years younger than Triple G, and this was a big fight for Triple G to potentially set up a trilogy fight against Canelo Alvarez. At times in this fight, Triple G looked great. At other times, he looked like he could get, you know, knocked out, especially with those vicious body shots that Murata was leaning on him, but we all know Triple G has a great chin. He has a great offensive attack throwing a lot of punches and bunches, and he's better when he's fighting, you know, on the front foot. When he fights on the back foot, he's more prone to getting hit, but of course, he's never been knocked down his career. He's known for a granite chin, and he showed that against Murata, who put on a great fight, but Triple G ended up showing his quality, his stamina, and why his offensive output is so great. He was able to get him after landing a few right hooks and then a straight right hand, that uh, Murata, you know, walked back on, and then the referee stepped in and called off the fight. So now uh, Triple G's record is 42-1-1, 37 wins by knockout, 5 by decision, uh, 1 loss, and 1 draw. Both the loss and the draw came, of course, against Canelo Alvarez. If this Triple G shows up to fight Canelo in their presumed trilogy, if he gets past Bivol, then I don't think he'll have much of a chance. Because if Canelo hits Triple G with the same shots that Murata was landing, especially with those body shots, because we all know Canelo is a great body puncher and maybe the best in the sport, so Triple G is clearly going to have to shore up his defense and not come in with the same tactics as he did against Murata. Because sure, you can take punches against Murata, but those same punches might put you down if Canelo is able to land them on Triple G. So hopefully he can come in with a better defense and also, you know, put an uptick in his offensive output because every round is going to be important and he's going to need to be on point in every round in order to upset Canelo. So it'll be interesting to see how Triple G looks going forward. Obviously he's showing his age a little bit, 
but still with that great knockout power, with those interesting hooks that he likes to throw, makes him a very fan-friendly fighter, and it's the reason why he's still my favorite boxer in the sport. The last recap I wanted to touch on in boxing was the fight between Edgar Berlanga and Steve Rolls. This happened on March 19th from the Hulu Theater in New York. Edgar Berlanga retained his WBO NABO super middleweight title against Steve Rolls by unanimous decision. Berlanga is, of course, the fighter that started out his career with 16 first-round knockouts, but since that, he's come out on top in three straight unanimous decision victories. So that early power that he showed in his career is still there, but as he moves up in competition and faces more quality guys, he's showing that he can't quite get him out of there as easily as he did you know, in the first couple of fights of his career. But he already has his next fight scheduled against Romer uh, Alexis Angulo, and that will be on June 11th from the Hulu Theater again in New York. So it should be an interesting fight. Looking forward to that. But for Edgar Berlanga, they're moving him on, you know, slowly up and up in competition each time. Hopefully he can put together another knockout performance in his next fight. Steve Rolls in this fight did a good job of maintaining distance and not getting caught with too many power punches from Edgar Berlanga. We know Berlanga is a destroyer that likes to put pressure on his opponents and when he has them hurt, he's good at getting him getting them out of there. But Rolls was able to keep enough of a distance, land enough punches to make this fight somewhat competitive, but Berlanga still won by unanimous decision. Berlanga has to do a better job of setting up his power punches and disguising his power so he can unleash it more frequently because we've seen what a great finisher he is. Sometimes he just has trouble getting into a rhythm and really being able to dominate his opponent through and through, through every round because he's not quite good enough at setting up his power punches. Sometimes he smothers his work and gets too close to his opponent. So he's got to work on that. He's still a young fighter, still has a lot to learn, but he's definitely one of the great power punchers in the sport, and we'll see if he can do a better job of showing that in his next fight against Alexis Angulo. Now let's preview the fight between Canelo Alvarez and Dimitri Bivol. This will be happening tomorrow, May 7th, from the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada, and it will be for Bivol's WBA light heavyweight title. And Canel Alvarez, the undisputed champion at 168 pounds, will be moving up to 175 to take on Bivol. Bivol is a Russian fighter. He is 31 years old, stands at 6 feet with a 72-inch reach, and he fights at light heavyweight. Bivol's record is 19-0 with 11 wins by knockout and 8 by decision. His most notable wins have come against Sullivan Barrera by 12th round TKO, Isaac Chalemba, by unanimous decision, Jean Pascal also by unanimous decision, Joe Smith Jr., a current world champion, also by unanimous decision, and since then he has three unanimous decision wins over Umar Salomov, Craig Richards, and Lennon Castillo. Now he could have got those fighters out of there, but he didn't. He still probably won all of the rounds in those fights. Canelo Alvarez is also 31 years old. He stands at five foot seven and a half with a 70 and a half inch reach. His record is 57-1-2 with 39 wins by knockout and 18 by decision. His one decision loss came to Floyd Mayweather 
and he has two draws. One draw was courtesy of Triple G. In Canelo's last fight, he got an 11th round TKO victory over Caleb Plant on November 6th of 2021. So this will be his first appearance in 2022. And last year in 2021, we got to see Canelo fight three times against Alvi Yerdum, then against Billy Joe Saunders, and then finally against Caleb Plant. This, as I said, will be his first appearance of 2022. He tends to be quite an active fighter in uh, you know the last year, and hopefully we see him three times again this year. And if he gets past Bivol, most likely he'll be taking on Gennady Glovkin in his next fight. Now, Bivol is no easy task for Canelo to defeat. He's a great boxer, has a great jab, is really good at reading distance and not getting overzealous with his punches, which would leave him open to attacks from Canelo. He's very measured in his approach, and it's going to be hard for Canelo to get on the inside and land the hooks that he likes to land on the body and the head of his opponents. Bivol is very measured, a very smart fighter, and I expect him to win the early rounds in this fight, but as it gets later on into the latter half of the fight, Canelo will get his timing down and start landing a lot more hooks to the body as he starts to break down his opponent. However, I don't think this fight will go to a knockout. I expect it to go to the judges' scorecards, and Canelo will win by unanimous decision. Canelo is a minus 500 favorite. Bivol is the plus 350 underdog. And I like this fight to go the distance, which is, I think, a minus 120 bet. So pretty good value there if you want to bet the fight to go the judges' scorecards, which I think it will. Bivol has a great chin. He's never really been challenged inside the ring. He's always able to work behind his jab to set up his power punches. The one quibble I have with Bivol's approach is that he doesn't go for the knockout often enough, even when he's dominating every round and winning the whole fight. Like in his last fight against Umar Salamov, he was winning every round, dominating this fight, but he wasn't able to get him out of there and ended up winning by unanimous decision. And that was back on December 11th of 2021. So this will also be the first time in 2022 that B-Ball will be appearing inside the ring. I think it'll be a close comparative fight. I'll say Canelo probably wins about eight rounds and Bivol around four rounds. Canelo fights in a very interesting fashion where he moves his hips side to side, also has good head movement. What he doesn't utilize a lot of is the jab. He utilizes more hooks and uh, uppercuts to really get on the inside and put the pressure on his opponent. And he's also very good at uh, targeting the body. So if he can target the body, then the head of Bivol, that will most likely be the best formula for him to win. However, Bivol has a very stout defense. He's hard to hit in there, very elusive in there because of his excellent technical ability in boxing. In my opinion, Bivol is the best pure boxer that Canelo has faced since he fought Floyd Mayweather Jr. back in 2013. So he's really going to have his hands full in trying to dissect the puzzle that is Bivol and his excellent defense. This also might not be the most exciting fight because Bivol is kind of a boring fighter in the way he fights. Doesn't really always go for the knockout, but is content to win each round. He's more interested in being comfortable in the ring than really putting himself out there and utilizing unnecessary risk to try to get the knockout. He would rather win on points. 
and coast to the finish line. Well, I think Canelo is really going to put pressure on that tactic and make this a real fight. It could be a brawl, but most likely it will be a measured approach from Bivol, and it will be on Canelo to really try to push the fight forward, make it more exciting, get on the inside, and land those hooks, those body shots, and those uppercuts that he's so well known for. So my pick for this fight is Canelo Alvarez to win by unanimous decision in a close competitive fight. The next fight I'm previewing will be happening on May 14th from Los Angeles on Showtime, a fight that I will most likely be attending because it is in Carson, California, so not too far for me to go. The last fight I attended live was the one between Errol Spence Jr. and Sean Porter a few years back, so it'll be nice to attend another fight live and enjoy, you know, this big main event between Charlo and Castaño for the undisputed 154-pound titles. All four belts will be on the line, so I'm really looking forward to this fight. In the co-main event, Jaron Ennis will be taking on Custio Clayton 12 rounds in the welterweight division. Ennis is an up-and-coming welterweight, a very elusive fighter, hard to hit, and he's also got power in both hands. So I think he'll get clean out of there, I'll say by six-round knockout. It should be a fun fight to prime up the audience for the main event between Charlo and Castaño. And the first fight between Charlo and Castaño was very close. I thought Castaño just edged it out because of his forward pressure and his ability to impose his will on Charlo, forcing Charlo not to be comfortable in there and really fight Castaño's fight. He did a great job of getting in the inside, landing a lot of body shots, lots of uppercuts, lots of hooks, and Charlo did not do a good enough job of maintaining distance, working behind his jab to find his power punches. So in their rematch coming up May 14th, I expect Charlo to make better adjustments than he did uh, when they first fought. Charlo, the twin brother of Jamal Charlo, is 5'11 with a 73-inch reach, and he is 31 years old. His record is 34-1-1 with 18 by knockout and 16 by decision, one loss by decision and one draw. His draw came against Brian Castaño in his last fight, and his one loss came against Tony Harrison by unanimous decision. However, in their rematch, Jermel Charlo actually was able to get a TKO victory over Tony Harrison in the 11th round. So this shows me when he has a chance to face an opponent more than once, He'll make adjustments from the first fight and employ them in the second fight. That's what he was able to do against Tony Harrison, and I expect him to be able to do the same thing against Brian Castaño. I don't think it'll be as close as a fight as it was when they first met, and I'll say Charlo will win by unanimous decision. Castaño, the Argentine champion, is five foot seven and a half with a 67-inch reach, and he is 32 years old fighting out of Argentina, and his record is 17-0-2, with 12 wins by knockout, 4 by decision, and 1 disqualification, and he has 2 draws. One, of course, came to Jermel Charlo, the other to Erzlandi Lara. So this guy's been in there with the best of the best. Obviously, this is the biggest fight of his career, and it's going to take an even better performance than his first fight, to get the upset win over Jamel Charlo. The odds for this fight are pretty close with Jamel Charlo a minus 170 and Castaño a plus 140. Closer than their first fight 
where Castagna was an even bigger underdog. So this shows me that this is likely going to be a close fight, but I think Charlo will make the proper adjustments and come out on top in a unanimous decision win. And the fight to go to the distance, I think it's a plus 120 that it goes the distance, so decent value there if you want to take that bet. Terrence Crawford has said in the past that he wants to fight Errol Spence Jr. And then if he wins that fight, move up to 154 pounds and take on the winner of Charlo and Castaño. So he could be a two-belt undisputed world champion. We'll see how that works out for Crawford, but he definitely wants to fight Charlo after Spence. It should be a great night of fights in Carson, California, and I look forward to attending them live. Also on May 14th from Ontario, California on DAZN, in the main event, we've got Gilberto Ramirez versus Dominic Bozo, 12 rounds in the light heavyweight division. I'll pick Ramirez here to get an 8th round knockout. Ramirez is a great light heavyweight with power in both hands and the ability to string together his power punches. He's got a good offensive game plan, and I think it'll be too much for Bozo to handle over the course of the 12 rounds, so that's why I like Ramirez to win by knockout. Ramirez looks to continue moving up the light heavyweight rankings with recent knockout wins over Sullivan Barrera in the 4th round and Uniski Gonzalez by TKO in the 10th round. Even when he faces trouble early on in the fight, like he did against Gonzalez, he's able to adjust and make the proper reads offensively and defensively to turn the fight in his favor. And if he faces early struggles against Bozell, I expect him to make those in-fight adjustments and come out on top against uh, this tough German opponent that he's going up against. Also on May 14th from Englewood, California, promoted by Triller Fight Club, we've got Sergei Kovalev versus Tervel Pulev, 10 rounds in the cruiserweight division. I'm not too familiar with Kovalev's opponent, but I expect he'll be able to knock out Pulev without too much. I'll pick Kovalev here to win by fifth round knockout. Kovalev is still one of my favorite boxers, although he's getting up there in age. I love his power, how he fights, how mean he is in the ring, how he looks to really hurt guys. Hopefully that's on display next Saturday. Moving on to another fight on May 14th. Babu Jack will be taking on Haney Atio, 12 rounds in the cruiserweight division from Dubai United Arab Emirates. I'm not really too familiar with his opponent. Hani Atiyo. I expect Babu Jack to get the win here, I'll say, by unanimous decision. Babu Jack is on a recent good run of form after a close split decision loss to Jean Pascal. He's gone on to win by unanimous decision over Blake McKernan, fourth round TKO over Dervin Kalina, and a second round knockout over Samuel Crossed back on November 26th of 2021. So it'll be another good opportunity for Babu Jack to get back in the ring. And I expect him to come out on top by decision. On May 21st from Phoenix, Arizona on Showtime, we've got a title fight between David Benavides and David Lemieux. 12 rounds for the vacant WBC interim super middleweight title. This is a big fight at 168 pounds. The winner could get a shot at Canelo Alvarez in the future. I expect Benavides to beat Lemieux here. This should be an all-action fight, a very exciting fight. Could be one of the fights of the year because Lemieux is an all-action, all-offense, come-forward fighter. He loves to put the pressure on his opponents. And Benavidez is known for his hand speed, for throwing punches and bunches. 
I expect this to be fireworks the whole way through. Lemieux is Canadian. He is currently 33 years old, 5'9", with a 70-inch reach, and his record is 43-4, with 36 wins by knockout, 7 by decision, with 4 losses, 2 by knockout, and 2 by decision. He lost by unanimous decision to Billy Joe Saunders and got knocked out in the 8th round by Gennady Golovkin. So he's been in there with some pretty good fighters. He's coming off a KO over Gary O'Sullivan in the first round, followed that up with a split decision win over Max Bursock, then a KO over Francie Natutu, and then most recently a second round TKO over David Zagara. So he's been on a recent really good run of form, and he's going up against one of the toughest challenges of his career in David Benavides. Benavides is a really great professional fighter. He's 25-0 with 22 wins by knockout and 3 by decision. He's coming off a 7th round TKO over Kyrone Davis, and I expect him to get the job done here in another big fight against David Lemieux. Benavides also has quality wins over the likes of Anthony Durrell, Alexis Angulo, Roland Ellis, Kyrone Davis by 7th round TKO in his most recent fight. So this should be a very competitive fight. Benavides is 25 years old. He stands at 6'2 with a 74.5 inch reach. So he'll have the height, reach, and age advantage all over Lemieux. So I like Benavides to win here. I'll say by late stoppage. Benavides by 11th round TKO is my official prediction. It should be an all-action war, and I can't wait for that fight on May 21st. Also on May 28th, from New York on Showtime pay-per-view, in the co-main event, we've got Arislandi Lara versus Gary O'Sullivan, 12 rounds for Lara's WBA regular middleweight title. I like Lara to win here by unanimous decision. I think he's going to be too elusive for O'Sullivan in there and able to land the more accurate punches throughout the fight. Sullivan might land a few power punches, but overall Lara, because of his tactical ability and his technical speed and his timing, will be able to get the better of Sullivan throughout the fight, so that's why I'm picking him to win by decision. Lara is coming off a first round knockout over Thomas Lamana back on May of 2021, so more than a year layoff for him going into this big fight against Gary O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan has recent knockout losses to Hyman Munguia by 11th round TKO and David Lemieux by 1st round knockout. So it'll be interesting if he can overcome those previous defeats and make it competitive against Lara. O'Sullivan is coming off a unanimous decision win over Nodar Robakidze, and that was back on May of 2021. So both these guys have had about a year layoff, and it'll be exciting to see them face off against each other. In the main event on Showtime pay-per-view, we've got Gervonta Davis versus Rolando Romero. 12 rounds for Davis, WBA regular lightweight title. I like Davis here to win by ninth round knockout. I think that his speed, his power, his ability to throw uppercuts and close the distance inside the ring will be too much for Romero to handle over the course of 12 rounds. So I like Davis to get the late stoppage here. Gervonta Tank Davis at only 27 years old is quickly becoming one of the biggest stars in boxing. He's coming off a unanimous decision win over the very tough Isaac Cruz in his last fight. Previous to that, 
He knocked out Leo Santa Cruz in the sixth round in the knockout of the year in 2020. And then after that, he got a TKO win over Mario Barrios, the much bigger Barrios, via 11th round TKO. So he's coming off some big knockout wins and was obviously pushed against Isak Cruz. Now he faces another fighter in Rolando Romero. Romero is 26 years old and he's also undefeated with 14 wins, 12 by knockout and 2 by decision. He's coming off a 7th round TKO victory over Anthony Yagit and that was back on July of 2021. So this is definitely going to be the toughest opponent that Romero has faced in his career. So he's going to have to come with a lot of gumption, determination, a really strong chin because he's going to be hit by some big shots against Gervonta Davis. We'll see if he can get some offense off and make this a competitive fight. I think it'll be an exciting fight because Davis always puts on pretty exciting fights. He's known for being the smaller guy and he's willing to take on these bigger opponents and still knock them out like he did against Leo Santa Cruz and also against Mario Barrios. And in this fight, Romero is five foot eight, whereas the smaller Gervonta Davis stands at five foot five and a half. So he's really short for a lightweight, but I expect he'll be able to get the job done getting Romero out of there by the ninth round in a very exciting fight. But ultimately the knockout power of Gervonta Davis will shine through and he'll be able to add another highlight to his growing highlight reel. That will conclude all my boxing previews for the month of May. Tune in towards the end of May for my boxing previews and recaps for all the great fights coming up in June. Just to give you a preview of the big fights coming up in June, we've got George Gambosos versus Devin Haney for the undisputed lightweight title at 135 pounds. Hopefully the winner of that fight would face Vasily Lomachenko. Also, we've got Stephen Fulton versus Daniel Roman. That's a big fight. Nayo Inoue versus Nonito Donaire. 12 rounds for Inoue's IBF and WBA bantamweight titles and Donaire's WBC bantamweight title. If you don't remember, go back and watch Inoue and Donaire when they first fought, I believe back in 2019. It was the fight of the year in that year, and I expect... Their rematch coming up on June 7th to be no different. So look forward to my next podcast when I preview those fights as well as the other fights coming up in June. That will conclude all the boxing talk for this episode. Now let's get into some MMA recaps and previews with of course UFC 274 coming up on Saturday. I'll begin with the recap of UFC 272 Covington vs. Masvidal back on March 5th of 2022 from T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada. In the co-main event, we had Rafael Dos Anjos taking on Renato Moicano, and Dos Anjos won by 5th round unanimous decision 50-44, 49-44, and 49-45 on all three judges' scorecards. He was able to dominate Moicano on the ground, with 13 minutes and 22 seconds of ground control time. Not the most exciting fight to watch, but Dos Anjos did what he needed to do to get the win and perhaps set up another big fight in the future. And he landed 179 total strikes. Moicano only landed 99. So didn't do enough on the feet and really got dominated in the wrestling department. Moving on to the main event between Colby Covington and Jorge Masvidal. 
Covington won by unanimous decision after five rounds, 49-46, 50-44, and 50-45 on all three judges' scorecards. Covington landed 218 total strikes. He had 16 minutes and 14 seconds of ground control in a 25-minute fight, was 6 of 15 on his takedown attempts. In Masvidal, he landed 90 total strikes and had 21 seconds of ground control time. So this fight really played out as I thought it would. Covington has the bigger gas tank, the better wrestling, and don't discount his striking because it's evolving and getting better each fight. So he could stand with, with Masvidal. He could really take him down whatever, whenever he wanted to, and that's what happened. Covington did get caught, I believe, once with a good straight right hand from Masvidal, but it wasn't nearly enough for him to get the win here. Covington overwhelmed him with his wrestling ability and also his improved striking game, as I expected. And Covington continues to be the second best welterweight in the division, not named, of course, the champ Kamara Usman. Now, we could be looking forward to a fight between Covington and Kazma Chimaev, but no word on if that fight will actually be scheduled, especially when you consider that Mazidal came up and sucker-punched Kobe Covington, I believe, in a restaurant in Miami a few months after their fight in the Octagon, and now Covington is pressing charges against Mazidal because uh, Covington chipped a tooth in that altercation. It's really a bad look for Masvidal. Isn't really helping his MMA career to, you know, do such a brash thing like that against a man just trying to enjoy his dinner. Masvidal continues to struggle when he goes up against the best guys in his division. Covington continues to shine and looked good in his rematch against Kamara Usman. And perhaps we could see a trilogy between the two if Covington continues to win and continues to look good against other top-level competition like Jorge Masvidal. Moving on to a recap of UFC 273, Volkanovski vs. the Korean Zombie on April 9th from Vistar Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, Florida. And in the third fight on the card, we had perhaps the fight of the year thus far between Kazmat Shemaev and Gilbert Burns. Shemaev won by unanimous decision 29-28 on all three judges' scorecards. After three rounds, I wish this was a five-round main event. Unfortunately, it was just three rounds, but while it lasted, it was action-packed, you know, full-on. Both guys really going for it. Both guys having their moments of nearly getting the other one out of there. It was just a great fight while it lasted. Burns actually outlanded Shemaev, landing 141 total strikes. Shemaev landed 124 strikes. And Shemaev had 2 minutes and 23 seconds of ground control time and was 2 of 3 on his takedown attempts. So this was a really fun fight. Uh, the first round was definitely Shemaev's almost getting Burns out of there. The second round I thought Burns won because he was able to press the action forward and push Shemaev back against the fence and really get off some nice power shots on him. Shemaev showed a hell of a chin in that second round. And then the third round I thought Shemaev took back control of the fight, and was able to land more power punches in that third round. I'm somewhat surprised that Shemaev didn't go to his wrestling more against Burns than he did, but I think he wanted to try his luck in the stand-up, but it might have been a more prudent approach for him to try to take Burns down and see what he could do you know, in the wrestling department. But for us fans, we love to see a stand-up war, and that's exactly what we got 
between these two great welterweights in Burns and Shemaev. What a fight that was. Definitely the fight of the night on that fight card. I felt like this fight just kept building and building in excitement. No round was boring. There was never really any lull in the action. Both these guys really wanted to win because they knew a win could really propel their career forward. But I think both guys did really well for themselves in this fight and both of them will likely be set up with big fights next. Coming into this fight, we viewed Kazmat Shemaev as this unbeatable force that was just going to walk through guys on his way to the title. But against Burns, he really showed that he's human, that he can get hit. It was just good to see him challenged in the octagon finally after so much hype around him. And this fight really lived up to it because both guys really went for it. And give a lot of credit to Burns for giving the fans such a great fight and for Shemaev for standing in there even when he was getting hit, coming back with his own offense and really making this an all-out war. However, against a better fighter like Kamara Usman, those mistakes that Shemaev made against Burns, he likely pay for even dearly and perhaps get knocked out. So I think against Kamara Usman, he'd have to fight a smarter, more tactical fight. And against Burns, it was really more of a brawling fight without much thought going into it. But I think Shemaev can also fight a more tactical, measured approach depending on his opponent. But on this night, you know, they just felt like they both wanted to brawl and the fans got a great fight out of it. In the co-main event, we had a rematch between Aljamain Sterling and Peter Yan for the bantamweight title at 135 pounds. Sterling won by split decision 48-47, 47-48, and 48-47. Personally, I thought that Jan won the fight three rounds to two. For two of those rounds, Sterling was on the back of Jan and had his legs around the, the midsection of Jan so he couldn't really get up. There was some great wrestling in there, but I thought that Jan won rounds four and five and also round one, whereas Sterling clearly won rounds two and three. And you look at the punch stats here, Jan landed 139 total strikes. Sterling only landed 91 total strikes. Sterling had 8 minutes and 31 seconds of ground control time. Jan had 5 minutes and 52 seconds of ground control time. So not much of a difference there. Sterling was 2 of 22 on his takedown attempts. That's right, he tried to take down Jan 22 times, was successful twice, but each time he took Jan down, he was able to hold him down for the remainder of that round. Jan was the champion coming into this fight, and I don't think Sterling did quite enough to really take the belt from him, but the judges saw it differently. And coming off their first fight where it ended controversially because Jan needed a downed opponent and Sterling could no longer continue. So going into this rematch, there was some controversy surrounding their first fight. And still, there's even more controversy after the second fight and the questionable uh, decision by the judges. Even Dana White said after the fight that he scored it for Jan. I also had it for Jan three rounds to two, but I wasn't the one judging, neither was Dana White. All that matters is that Aljamain Sterling is now the undisputed champ, and he's talking about a potential matchup with TJ Dillashaw next. I didn't see the same aggressive come forward Jan that I've seen in his other fights, like the one against Jose Aldo or the first fight against Aljamain Sterling, I thought he was more measured in his approach and didn't string together enough power punches and enough offense 
to be able to get Aljamain Sterling out of there. Aljo makes this a very competitive fight utilizing his wrestling to control rounds two and three. But after that, I thought Jan did enough to win in rounds four and five, but maybe it wasn't obvious enough to the judges, and that's why they gave this close decision to Sterling. Moving on to the main event. This was a featherweight title fight between the champion Alexander Volkanovsky and the challenger, the Korean Zombie. Volkanovsky, he landed 152 total strikes and had 2 minutes and 52 seconds of ground control time and was 4 of 8 on his takedown attempts. The Korean Zombie only landed 51 total strikes. This was complete domination by the champion Alexander Volkanovsky in a fight that never really should have been made. Volkanovsky won by 4th round knockout after 45 seconds. I thought this was a mismatch going into the fight and he dominated the Korean Zombie much in the same manner that Tyson Fury dominated Dillian White or when Jorge Masvidal did a rematch against Kamara Usman and got knocked out. It reminded me of those title fights where the champion thoroughly dominates his opponent. And this was much the same here with Volkanovski who put on a virtuoso performance and further cemented himself as you know a great featherweight champion. Of course we're still waiting for another fight against Max Holloway and hopefully that it will be Volkanovski's next fight. Volkanovski looked quick, powerful, had great timing in there against the Korean Zombie and he just kept getting hit over and over with the same shots, not being able to adjust to the speed of Alexander Volkanovski. He also mixed up some good wrestling in between to keep the Korean Zombie on his toes and he was never really able to get any offense going or really make this a competitive fight as long as it lasted. Volkanovski has also teased moving up to lightweight and may be taking on the winner between Gaethje and Oliveira. So we'll see how that all plays out or if he stays at featherweight and perhaps defends his title against Max Holloway in the future again. It looks like Volkanovski is just getting better and better in each fight. And Korean Zombie is no slouch. He's been in there against some of the top guys and has some big wins in his career. But I think Volkanovski right now is just on another level. And he continues to update his fight game each time he steps in the octagon. Volkanovski also did a good job with his kicks. Landing 26 of 29 kicks to the legs of the Korean Zombie. So not only was he attacking his upper body but also his lower body to really give the fans a well-rounded striking performance. Moving on to a preview of UFC 274 from the Footprint Center in Phoenix, Arizona. Oliveira vs. Gaethje is the main event. And let's go ahead and preview that pay-per-view fight card. The first fight on the pay-per-view will be Donald Cerrone against Joe Lozon. Both these guys are MMA veterans, have been fighting for a lot of years. And Joe Lozon is 37 years old. His opponent, Donald Cowboy Cerrone, is 39 years old. This could possibly be both of these guys' last fight. Cerrone is the favorite at minus 180. Lozon the underdog at plus 155. I'm not really sure how this fight will play out, but I know that both these guys will put on an absolute show because neither of these fighters are ever in a boring fight. So it's bound to be competitive as long as it lasts. And I'll pick Cerrone here to get the win by unanimous decision. 
I think his striking versatility with his kicks and his punches, also his length and his reach, will be a lot for Lozon to handle. If this fight does go to the ground, I'm not really sure who has the better advantage there, but I expect most of this fight to be fought on the feet in a nice stand-up battle with Cerrone winning by unanimous decision. Moving on to the next fight on that fight card, the pay-per-view fight card, we've got Shogun Rua, an absolute legend in this fight game, taking on Ovin St. Preux, and St. Preux is the favorite at minus 240, while Rua is the underdog at plus 200. I like St. Preux to get the win here, I'll say by third round knockout. I think that his striking and his wrestling will be enough to overwhelm Rua in the later rounds. Rua, of course, has really good stamina, but I think that St. Preux is just a little better in most aspects of the fight game, and I expect him to get him out of there in the third round. St. Preux is 39 years old, while his opponent, Rua, is also up there in age at 40 years old. So this is a really a matchup of two older guys, same as with Cerrone and Lozon, and I like St. Preux here to get the third round knockout. Moving on to the next fight on the fight card, will be between Michael Chandler and Tony Ferguson. Ferguson hasn't been the same after the brutal beating that Justin Gaethje put on him. Since that fight, he's looked like a changed fighter. He doesn't quite have the same dog in him, the same winning mentality. We saw that when he got dominated by Biniel Dariush in his last fight. He also lost to the current champion, Charles Oliveira, by unanimous decision, getting out-wrestled by him as well. So clearly Ferguson has to work on his wrestling in order to become a more well-rounded fighter. But at this point in his career, he could be all washed up, especially after the beating he took against Justin Gaethje and then two decision losses to Oliveira and also Beniel Dariush. Ferguson is also getting up there in age at 38 years old and he's been through some wars in his career. So that can help, can't help the miles on his body. And Michael Chandler the transplant coming over from Bellator. He's 36 years old. He nearly knocked out the champion Oliveira in the first round, but he wasn't able to get him out of there. And then we all know what happened in the second round when Oliveira got the knockout on on Chandler in a very crazy and amazing fight. And in this fight, Chandler is a pretty big favorite at minus 360. Ferguson, the underdog at plus 280. Ferguson is 5'11". Chandler, 5'8". Ferguson has a 76.5-inch reach and Chandler 71.5-inch reach. I don't expect that to play too much of a factor in this fight because Chandler is a very explosive fighter. He likes to throw explosive striking techniques to knock out his opponent as he did against Dan Hooker previously. Also, don't forget that Chandler is a very good wrestler as well. So if this fight does go to the ground, I expect Chandler to have an advantage there. I'm picking Chandler to get the knockout by the third round. I think that he's going to overwhelm him with his striking and also his wrestling. He's also got a pretty good cardio gas tank. He can you know, keep going and not get tired as the rounds were on. Whereas Ferguson could get overwhelmed as we've seen against Dariush and Oliveira in the past. It could be another you know, repeat performance of that against the great wrestling of Chandler. I think this is going to be a very exciting fight. Both Ferguson and Chandler tend to put on, you know, wars and very memorable fights, whether they win or lose, as we've seen in the past. And I expect this to be no different. 
but I'm picking Chandler to get the win by third round knockout. Chandler's a great athlete, very explosive. Ferguson relies on an accumulation of punches and kicks to tire out his opponent. He really doesn't have that one-punch knockout power, whereas Chandler, I think he does have that type of knockout power as we've seen in the past. Ferguson is going to have to show some new wrinkles in his game if he wants to get the upset win over Chandler. I just don't know if he can continue to evolve in his fight game after all these years and all the wars that he's been through. In the co-main event, the woman's strawweight title is on the line between Rose Namajunas and Carla Esparza. This is actually a rematch between these two fighters because Esparza previously beat Rose Namajunas all the way back when they fought in 2014, and she beat Namajunas by submission in the third round. Eight years later, they're going to fight a second time, and both these fighters are different since they last fought, obviously. Esparza's record is 19-6, and and since losing to Tatiana Suarez by knockout in September of 2018, she's went on to get a unanimous decision win over Verna Jandiroba, majority decision over Alexa Grasso, split decision win over Michelle Watterson and Marina Rodriguez, and a knockout win in the second round over Jan Junan to set up this big title fight against Rose Namunis. Esparza is 5'1", 115 pounds, 34 years old, with a 63-inch reach, and her opponent, Rose Namunis is 5'5", 115 pounds, 29 years old, with a 65-inch reach. So she's got 4 inches of height on her and a few inches of reach against the smaller Carla Esparza. Namiunis has a record of 12-4, and and her most three recent wins came against Jessica Andrade by split decision, knockout win over Zhang Weili, and then a split decision over Zhang Weili in their rematch to retain her strawweight title. She also had two big wins over Joanna Uresic, a knockout and a decision win over her in uh, when they fought all the way back in 2017 and 2018. Now moving into this fight against Carla Esparza, she's going to have to really work on her submission defense and her wrestling because I expect Esparza to try to take this down to the mat and make this more of a wrestling match It will be a Namajunas to keep this fight on the feet and control the distance with her great striking, both with her kicks and her punches, to keep Esparza on the outside. This should be an interesting chess match between these two women, and, you know, whoever's able to impose their game plan better will end up winning this fight. It's a pretty hard fight to actually call as to who's going to win. Nami Yunus is the favorite at minus 220, Esparza the underdog at plus 180, but I think the odds are even closer than that, even when you consider how their first fight went back eight years ago. Now going into this fight, Esparza is coming off some big wins. Nami Yunus looked pretty good against Whaley in her last fight. However, she did leave some questions unanswered in terms of her offense and also her defensive capabilities. So we'll see if Esparza can take advantage of some of those perceived weaknesses and come out on top here. However, I still like Namunis to win this fight. I'll stay by unanimous decision. It'll be close. Maybe Esparza wins two rounds because of her wrestling 
and Namunis wins the other three because of her striking. I think it'll be a close fight. Maybe not all that exciting, but definitely, you know, a very competitive title fight for these women. I'm not too sure how this fight is going to go, but I'll go ahead and pick Naima Yunus here to win by unanimous decision. Now let's move on to the main event and what could be an all-time great lightweight title fight between Charles Oliveira and Justin Gaethje. Gaethje is never in a boring fight. He's one of the most exciting fighters in the whole sport. He's always willing to stand and trade, you know, to take a few punches, to land his own, and that's why we love him. We saw that against Michael Chandler. We've seen that in the past against Tony Ferguson, how he's able to dictate the pace. And, you know, he's not going to give up. He's always willing to go forward and take punishment to dish out his own. He's also, you know, been working on his wrestling because that's what he's going to need. He's going to need great wrestling tactics to overtake and overwhelm Oliveira, who's known for his great submission techniques on the ground and also an advanced striking game that's getting better and better in each fight. We, of course, now know that Charles Oliveira failed to make weight. As a result of this, he lost his fight on the scales because he weighed in a half pound over the lightweight limit. However, the fight still is going on as planned. But if Oliveira wins, he won't retain his title. However, if Gaethje wins, he will become the new lightweight champion. So some unfortunate news for Oliveira there. But hopefully he can put that behind him and still come out with a great performance against Gaethje because that's what he's going to need to have a chance in this very close fight that's pretty hard to call. Gaethje is 5'11", 155 pounds, 33 years old with a 70-inch reach. His opponent, the champ Charles Oliveira, is 5'10", 155 pounds, 32 years old with a 74-inch reach. Oliveira is the slight favorite at minus 140. Gaethje the slight underdog at plus 120. This fight will be dictated by who can control the pace and the distance of the fight. And if Oliveira is able to get this fight to the ground, he should have some advantages there with his slick submission game. However, Gaethje will be cognizant of that wrestling of Oliveira and will be looking to keep this on the feet with his excellent boxing and his ability to push forward and really put the pressure on his opponent. We've seen in the past Oliveira succumb to the pressure as he did against Michael Chandler. Of course, he recovered and knocked out Chandler in the second round. But if he makes those same mistakes against Gaethje, he could pay for it dearly. Oliveira has looked really good in his last couple of fights, getting a submission win over Kevin Lee, following that up with a dominant unanimous decision victory over Tony Ferguson, a knockout win over Michael Chandler to win the lightweight title, and then a submission win over Dustin Poirier to retain his lightweight title. Now he's going up against Justin Gaethje, another tough opponent. Gaethje, of course, is coming off a big a decision win over Michael Chandler in a very competitive and very exciting fight. One of the fights of the year. Now he's looking to finally win that lightweight title that he was unable to do previously when he challenged Khabib Nurmagomedov for it. Oliveira's record is 32-8 and and his last loss came back in 2017 to Paul Felder by knockout. So he hasn't lost since 2017. Is on a Great winning streak here and will look to continue it against Justin the Highlight Gaethje. Oliveira also has, I believe, a record UFC 20 submission wins. He looked to add to that against Gaethje. 
Gaethje has a record of 23-3 with 19 wins by knockout and 1 by submission. His loss, last loss came in 2020 to, of course, Khabib Nurmagomedov by submission in the second round. After that, he got a big unanimous decision win over Michael Chandler. In that fight, Gaethje showed a tremendous will to win, a great chin to take a lot of punches from Chandler and still keep pushing forward and land his own punches. Now in this fight against Oliveira, he's going to have to utilize his wrestling defense and his submission defense if Oliveira is able to get it on the ground. If this does stay standing, I like Oliveira to try to keep Gaethje on the outside with his punches, also with his kicks, and see if he can mix up you know, that striking versatility during the fight. Oliveira seems to be getting better and better. I thought that Poirier was actually going to beat Oliveira in his last fight. He showed me a great will to win, withstanding the great boxing of Poirier until eventually he overwhelmed him and got that rear naked choke in and submitted him. Now looking forward to this fight against Gaethje. It's bound to be a great fight. Both guys are really going to give it their all, I believe. And it could go either way, but I think Oliveira is going to end up getting the win here. I'll say by fifth round submission, eventually Gaethje could tire out a little bit. And that's when Oliveira will jump on his back and, you know, get his hooks in and perhaps even get that fifth round submission that I'm predicting. Hopefully the missed weight isn't going to weigh too much on the mind of Oliveira and he's going to be able to block that out and still give a great performance. And that's when I'm counting on in a great lightweight title fight that could go either way, but I'm picking Oliveira here to win by fifth round submission. This fight will really come down to who can control the distance, how long they can keep it standing, and if Oliveira can enforce his will on the ground. It should be a great chess match between two great fighters. The winner should face Islam Makashov next because he definitely deserves the title shot. We'll see what happens. If Oliveira wins, he's not the champion because he lost it on the scale, but if Gaethje wins... You know, maybe they make that Makashev fight happen. But either way, I think Makashev is the next guy up, you know, in terms of fighting for that lightweight title. He looked great in his last fight against Bobby Green, completely shutting down his offense and, you know, getting that win over him. So we'll see what happens here. I'm picking Oliveira. Well, thank you so much for listening to episode number 34 of Combat Bets with Jason Barron on the Believe Network, presented by Bet Online. I hope everyone enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe out there. Enjoy all the great fights coming up in May and into June. We've got big fights coming up both in boxing and in MMA to look forward to. Obviously, the NBA playoffs are also in full swing and the NHL playoffs just kicked off. I love playoff hockey. I love the NBA playoffs as well. And don't forget about the EuroLeague Final Four. Real Madrid against Barcelona in one semifinal. The other semifinal will feature Olympiacos taking on Anadolu Efes, the champion from last year's EuroLeague Final Four. So I love the EuroLeague, I love the NBA, and of course, the NHL playoffs. There's really nothing like playoff hockey. For all you sports fans that don't know what the EuroLeague is, it is Europe's premier basketball competition. It's one of my favorite sports to watch. The final four will be going down later on in May, so hopefully you can all tune in and watch that great EuroLeague action. Everyone have a great weekend. Enjoy all the great fights, and remember, 
Kobe forever, Mamba forever, Hank Aaron forever, Diego Maradona forever, Marvin Hagler and Muhammad Ali forever. Enjoy all the great fights and have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.